Good afternoon, everyone. This is Pastor Matt Parra, the Sabbath School Director for the North New South Wales Conference. I am really excited about the opportunity that I have this week to share some of my personal thoughts and comments on this week's Sabbath School lesson, which was entitled, Our Forgiving God. We're just going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into uh, the lesson study for the week. Father in heaven, thank you for your promised presence and your continued guidance of the Holy Spirit. We want to be able to say at the end of this lesson study that we have been taught of God. Lord in heaven, we this Sabbath don't want to teach with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but rather we would prefer to have the Holy Spirit and his power with us. Of course, we want to communicate well, help us to be able to do that, but in spite of our ability or lack of ability, just bless us and use us. And may we be filled with sincerity and genuineness. And may that come out in everything we say. Bless all of us as we worship you on this Sabbath. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, everyone, I want to focus for a few minutes on the memory text for this week. And in doing so, we will set the stage for the rest of the week's lessons. We'll only be focusing on Sunday through Thursday's lesson because they're the ones that have the most content, the most information, and they focus more on texts of scripture. And so that's what we'll be doing. And our memory text for the week is found in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13. And it says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Now consider this verse and the message that it shares with us. Do you want to prosper? Well then, don't cover up your sins. Now there's lots of reasons why you might want to cover up your sin. There's lots of reasons why I want to cover up my sins. I don't want people to know what I've done. I don't want people to know what I really am. And so I'll cover up. I'll, I'll, I'll mask reality uh, because that's safe that's comfortable but the bible says that if i do that matt if you cover your sins you will not prosper but whoever is willing to be humble is willing to be meek whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy god's merciful god wants to forgive us god wants to restore us we can find ourselves in the deepest pit of despair in the bottom of the miry uh, bowels of sin. And God wants to forgive. God wants to cleanse. But how can he be merciful to those who won't even admit that they need his mercy? Who won't even confess the truth about what they do, who they are, the condition of their mind and their, of their heart. Look, it takes humility and a radical commitment to the truth to do what this verse is saying we should do. He who covers his sin will not prosper. Well, how could you prosper when you're living a lie? How could you prosper when you're just a covering up artist? We shouldn't live in an illusion, okay? We're sin-filled and twisted and wrecked and warped. And if we admit that to ourselves, well, then God can help us. But if we don't admit that to ourselves, God can't help us. They say in Alcoholics Anonymous that the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. It's confession. 
It's humbly confessing that you have a problem. If you can't do this, you can't be helped. You're just living a lie. You're living in an illusion. And nobody who's living in an illusion uh, can be helped. Not at all. You have to come to the truth. You have to be willing to confess, no matter how painful or how uncomfortable we should do it. Uh, And we'll prosper. God's willing to forgive. He's merciful. You know, the verse doesn't just say that we should confess our sins. It says we should confess and forsake them. Now, when I was a kid, my mom used to catch me doing things wrong. Uh, quite quite often, actually. And I'd often try to get out of the punishment that she would prescribe once I'd be in trouble. And I'd say, Mom, I'm so sorry. I, I'm really sorry. I mean, I'm really, really sorry, Mom. I'm really, really sorry. Don't punish me. And she'd say, you know, son, if you were really sorry, then you wouldn't mind the fact that you're going to be punished. You're proving to me, because you're trying to get out of the punishment, that you're not sorry at all. Well, at least you're not sorry for what you did. You're just sorry for the fact that you got caught. And you're trying to get yourself off the hook by pretending that you're sorry. There's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? And I think it's the same with what this text is saying. If, if I'm really sorry for what I've done, I'll try to change. If I'm really sorry about the sin I've committed, I'll change. If I'm sorry that I spoke to my, my wife rudely or insultingly, if I'm really sorry about that, guess what I'll do? I'll do everything in my power to not do it again. Now, I'm not trying to say in any way that you're not really sorry if you don't have the ability to become perfect. No, but you begin to contend with your struggles and you contend with your sins and you go to war with your sins when you're really sorry for them and you do everything you can to stop doing it when you're sorry. But if you just say you're sorry and you don't really try to, if you can confess your sins, but you don't really, you know, forsake them or do what you can to stop practicing them, it's just proof that you're really not sorry for what you've done. You're just sorry that you got caught. True confession, true confession and true sorrow for sin involves you forsaking it. And this is what this verse is emphasizing. You cover up, you're not going to prosper. But if you're open, honest, and and willing to be uh, transparent, if you confess and forsake your sins, you're going to have mercy. God's going to give you mercy. But he can't give you mercy if you don't even admit that you need it. Could you say amen? You might be by yourself in the car at home. Just say amen anyways. Amen. It's true. And it's what the Word of God teaches. True confession involves humility. We humans seem to be in an endless round of competing with each other. Who's going to distinguish themselves above the rest? Who's the greatest? Who's the holiest? Who's the most together? You know, this verse attacks that way of functioning, you know, that mindset of who's the greatest. If you're confessing your your faults, confessing your sins, and being open and honest in that regard, You're saying to heaven and to earth, I'm not playing the who's the greatest game. No, no, no. I'm living before God and I'm acknowledging the truth. And I'm not going to live an illusion. I'm going to live the truth. I'm going to confess and forsake my sins and trust in the mercy of God. Oftentimes, people who aren't willing to confess their sins aren't willing to confess their sins because they don't realize that God is merciful. Their understanding of God is that he's not merciful. They're going to cover up. So this sets the stage. This sets the stage 
for the rest of our commentary on this week's Sabbath school lesson. We see uh, Sunday's lesson highlighting the beginning of a prayer service found in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says that the people, they separate themselves from the surrounding nations and they get together wearing sackcloth and being dirty, physically dirty, and fasting. They come together, they're fasting, they're wearing sackcloth and ashes, and they're physically dirty. This is the depiction we see of the people of Israel at this prayer meeting. Uh, and they separate themselves from all of the surrounding uh, nations, the people of the, of the nations around them. So it's just Jews fasting together in sackcloth and dirty. Now, now I see in the physical condition of the Israelites a message sent to God. And that message is, God, we understand the condition that we're in on a spiritual and moral level, and we're going to reflect that in how we come before you. We are empty. We're empty. We're going to come before you not eating food. Food's not going to get in between us and, and, and our connecting with you, our, our reconciling with you. We're empty. We're going to come with empty stomachs. We realize we're morally wretched. And so we're going to come before you, God, unclean. We're not going to take a bath. We're just dirty and filthy. We're unattractive on a moral, spiritual level because we're so defiled and sinful and backwards and evil in ourselves. And so, God, we're going to show that in how we come to you. This is, serves as a lesson. These people acknowledged even in how they approached God that they knew the condition that they were in. I think that's beautiful. I think that that would have touched the heart of God. I think that would have struck a chord in the loving heart of our Heavenly Father. Look at my children. They have hurt me so terribly. They have abandoned me. They have disregarded me on every level. And I've done everything to bless them and to love them and to care for them. But look at them now, acknowledging their fault. You know, one of the things that's so awesome about my marriage is that my wife and, and I are always willing to admit when we've done something wrong. And you know, it brings such peace into our relationship. And I'm not trying to brag here, but I just, this is an illustration that came to my mind. I'm not trying to brag here, but like when you know that you're in a relationship with someone who will fully own it when they've done something wrong, it really brings peace and stability to the relationship because there's something really bad about a person who will hurt you and never fully acknowledge it, right? And, and so the people of God, they've ripped his heart out. I mean, he, how much had he done for them? How much had he given for them? How much? Everything. He lives every moment of his life for their blessing. And they just totally, you know, totally disrespected that and neglected that. And then they find themselves in Babylonian and then Persian captivity. Their city's in ruin. And, and now they're coming to him in, in full recognition of the condition that they're in. And I'm sure his heart would have been so blessed and he would have just felt so good. You know, God, he's not a machine. He's a person. <laughs> he's a person. He's, he's the king of the universe. And he's the engineer who designed everything that it is. And everything that is. And in him, we live and we move and we have our being. But guys, at the same time, God is a person. <laughs> he's a person. And uh, if you care about a person that you're in a relationship with and you've done something wrong, it's really appropriate and, and kind and, and nice to, to show it, to show that you've done something inappropriate and that you know it and take responsibility for it. And so these people come to God dirty. They come to God 
fasting. They come to God in sackcloth and ashes. I think as a church community, we should come together as a family more and do this. Uh, We oftentimes get together to play sports, play games, watch movies, and that's fine. Have fun, live life, be social. You don't always have to be, you know, uh, spiritual. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes not to be spiritual over much, right? Not to over-spiritualize everything, uh, but to enjoy the, the, the simpler things of life. That's okay. I'm not condemning you for that. But at the same time, the Bible says there's a time for everything. And I do fear that sometimes in our churches, we're so worried about becoming formal and ritualistic and monastic and kind of medieval in our approach to religion that we kind of just become superficial and shallow, right? And we can never come together in a solemn spirit of repentance and openness before God. I think, I think we, could, we could do that from, from time to time and be benefited and be blessed. It's unhealthy. It's unhealthy to only function one way. There's a time for everything. There's a time to cry. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to kill, a time to, to heal. There's a time for everything under the sun. And uh, when it's a time for us to come together the way the Israelites were coming together here, I'd say let's do it. And let's not be afraid to be spiritual and serious about our relationship with God. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. There are eternal destinies in the balance, both in our church and outside of our church. And uh, a walk with God is a serious thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a lovely thing. And we're not cowering in fear all the time in our relationship with Jesus. But you get the point, guys. You get the point I'm making. There's a time for everything, and this is a beautiful example of that. The Israelites here are separating themselves from the other peoples. Now, is this because they're exclusivistic? Is this because they're bigoted? No. The lesson brings this out powerfully. It's because they are acknowledging that they were unfaithful to the covenant that they made with God, and they're going to get right with God, they're going to come back to God in sincerity. And, uh, and, and they're not going to include people in that prayer service, in that service of repentance and confession, who had nothing to do with getting them into the situation that they're in. Now, I think there's a beautiful lesson here. I mean, think about it, guys. Just consider this. In my life, I can admit, and I've seen this with other people, that, that I'll, I'll point at the circumstances around me and say, oh, it's that circumstance, it's this circumstance that is the reason for why I am in the condition that I'm in, you know? And the implication is, is if I weren't in this situation, I wouldn't, uh, uh, if I weren't dealing with these circumstances, I wouldn't be in this situation. I wouldn't have done what I did. I wouldn't be in my present condition. But here we see people doing the opposite thing. They're not saying, blaming the the people around them for the circumstances they're in. No, they're separating those people. Hey, this isn't this isn't about you and your need to confess. This is about me and my need to confess. This is about us and our need to confess. And it's like on the airplane where it says um in a way you'll you'll make the connection here on an airplane when they give you instructions on what to do when an oxygen mask may drop down from the ceiling. They say if an oxygen mask drops down from the ceiling, make sure that you put your oxygen mask on first before you attend to your children because you might pass out. And if you pass out, well, then you can't help your kids and you both might die, right? So you've got to make sure you're uh, connected to the oxygen. And if you're not connected, 
then you can't help other people be connected, right? And so the Israelites needed to connect with God and get right with God before they could help other people get right with God. They didn't just say, well, you all need to get right with God and you need to do what's right and create a circumstance and then I'll do what's right, you know? They were taking responsibility for themselves. And this is a magnificent lesson for us. We have to take responsibility. I heard a Bible worker once say uh, that repentance, true repentance involves admitting that it's your fault. (laughs) It's your fault. Now, I know there's pains, there's problems that come upon all of us that aren't due to what we've done in our our circumstances. But when we're talking about our experience with God, our experience with God, um, it's not God's fault, our condition, our circumstance. It's not other other people's fault. Um, We have to take responsibility. Um, Okay, so on to Monday's lesson, which is uh, focusing on the beginning of the prayer that the people pray in this season of prayer, this, this worship service filled with prayer and repentance. And what happens is the Bible tells us that the Levites all get together and they cry out to God with a loud voice. And then they begin to talk about, uh, his wonderful works of creation and how he sustains the natural world and how he's given it to us to bless us and how because of this, his name should be glorified and magnified above all names. And then they talk about how he called Abram from Ur of the Chaldees and how he named him Abraham and made a covenant with him and was faithful to that covenant. So just think about that. God, you're awesome. You're blessed. Your name is above all names. Look at the world you made. Look how faithful you were in giving us such a wonderful place to inhabit and to find fulfillment in. And you called Abram and you named him Abraham. You made a covenant with him and you were always faithful to that that covenant. So they're just like magnifying the Lord and emphasizing how awesome God is, right? Now, uh, this is how they start it all, you know? They're focusing on the goodness of God. Now, I want to make a point that is a devotional thought that I think that you will be blessed by. God, help me to communicate this well. So it says at the beginning of the chapter, in uh, beginning of the prayer, sorry, that they, they, they cry out to God with a loud voice. Now, when you speak with a loud voice, it's because you're, you're convicted or you're filled with passion or you're really serious about what you're saying. Um, whatever the, the reason uh, behind why you're speaking loudly, you're speaking loudly because you have lots of emotion in you. You're putting your all into what you're saying, right? Um, there's better language that I could use to explain that. But in, in short, you speak loudly because you have reached a level of intense emotion, okay? So they're speaking to God with a level of, in, of pretty intense, with a high level of emotion, Okay, they're, they're very serious and, and intense in their prayer here, okay? They're, they're like James says, speaking a fervent, effectual prayer, right? Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, there are three messages sent by God to the world at the end of time. Tailor-made messages from God to be delivered to the world to help the world at its final hours, okay? So Revelation 13, Satan... And satanic agencies are, are, are taking the world over. False worship is being compelled. And Revelation 14 begins. And there are people who follow the lamb wherever he goes. 
They don't just follow him when it's convenient or where there's when there's a lot of pleasure involved in doing so. They follow the lamb even when the whole world's not, right? And they're not distracted by the allurements of the world. They have the name of the Father written in their foreheads because they love God for who he is, not just for what they can get out of him. These are the genuine. These are the true. And so the world is being enveloped by false worship, false concepts of God, you know, paganized Christianity. It's, it's enveloping the planet, and it's satanic, and it's twisted, and it's evil. And there are these people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and there's a message that comes from God that these people preach called the three angels' messages. In the introduction to the, this, this is the introduction to the three angels' messages. It's in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 14, and it says, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them who dwell upon the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice. I'm going to stop right there. Saying with what kind of voice? Saying with a loud voice. Now, you speak with a loud voice when you want to be heard. And you speak with a loud voice when you really believe what you're saying. And you speak with a loud voice when you're speaking with intense emotion. You speak with a loud voice when you're not ashamed of the gospel. Now, sometimes we're witnessing and we're speaking for God in a very low voice, right? Our witness sometimes could be characterized as not a loud voice, but as a soft voice, right? Now, when I say that we should witness, when I, you, you, you guys are smart. When I say that the last day message to the world is a loud message, I don't mean it's an obnoxious message. I don't mean that it's an impolite message. I don't mean that it's a message that lacks love and consideration or that it's spoken out of turn. No, but I am saying it's an unashamed message that spoke with, spoken with conviction, spoken with intense emotion and, 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 and genuineness, and it's spoken loudly right? Now, there's a connection here that I find, a devotional connection. Maybe our witness is not as loud as it should be because we're not approaching God as loudly as we should approach God. The Israelites in Nehemiah's day, they cried aloud to God, and then they emphasized his creative power and his goodness and all that he had done and his faithfulness. Maybe if we did that more in our prayer, and in our time together as a people, then maybe our witness would be more loud, right? Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. And maybe we don't say fear God and give him glory and preach the three angels' messages as loud as we should because we don't come together enough in sackcloth and in ashes, dirty, fasting, and praying before God, focusing on his goodness and his wonder and his awesomeness. We're sometimes intimidated by the world because we're not in awe of God, right? We're impressed with the world and we're intimidated by it because we don't focus enough on God. I think like the song that sung the old hymn, you know, um, that when we look into the face of Jesus, the things of the world, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're so intimidated by the world because we look at it too much. We pay attention to it too much. We're intimidated by it. God's given us a message that he has deemed relevant 
it's tailor-made by him to help the world at the end of time. And I think sometimes we hide that message under a bushel, ashamed and afraid. And we come up with all kinds of clever, sophisticated reasons as to why we don't proclaim it and why we don't preach it and why we don't shout it from the mountaintops in every way, shape, and form that we can. And I think that the answer is simple. We don't do that because we don't do what Nehemiah and the Israelites did in Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's move on together to Tuesday's lesson, which is entitled Lessons from the Past. So the Israelites, in their praying to God, they continue to recount his faithfulness in his dealings with them through the course of their history. They talk to God about how they were in Egyptian slavery, but he saved them from it. He, he cared for them and he delivered them. And he brought them out of slavery and he took them to a mountain and he delivered to them a governmental system of laws. And those laws were awesome and amazing and good and useful. And if they had followed them, they would have been prosperous and blessed and they would have shined his glory out around the world. And they recount that in their prayer to God and their praising of God. And then they talk to God about how he made a covenant with them and how he gave them the land of Canaan. But then what ends up happening is it talks in this lesson, this day's lesson, and in in, in the prayer, the, the prayer shifts focus from how good God is and how awesome God was to the people to how they neglected him and took him for granted and danced around golden calves and could just utterly disregarded him and were completely and totally ungrateful and unappreciative in how they behaved and in how they acted. So you see in Tuesday's lesson, this interesting juxtaposition between God's goodness and the people's badness, right? So there's no covering up here. There's no hiding. It's like the memory verse. They're not covering their sins. They're confessing them. And, and in confessing them, they're not trying to make their sins look you know, as mild or as innocuous as possible or as harmless as possible. They're just saying, they're magnifying how sinful their sin is by saying how awesome God was and how inexcusable it was for them to behave the way they behaved towards God, right? So they're taking full responsibility and they're in essence saying, God, it's not your fault. Like you were amazing to us. You were totally faithful to us, but we were completely unfaithful to you. And here we are, here we are in the muck and in the mud and and it's not your fault, right? I I find this to be uh, beautiful, really. Just awesome. They're not trying to lessen the sense of their guilt. They're not trying to lessen the sense of their guilt. When we try to lessen the sense of our guilt, we're not trusting in the mercy of God, and we're not being truly, genuinely repentant. The last point that I want to mention here is something the lesson brings out. It's really powerful. In Romans chapter 2, the Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And we see that in the history of the Israelite nation, and we see this here in Nehemiah chapter 9. In recounting how good God's been, and in recounting how bad the people have been, this this helps them to love God because they see him for who he is. His love is not offered on the basis of their behavior. Like, surely there's consequences for actions, and surely he's just, and, and he's willing to punish and recompense, like, by all means, but always it's out of love. And he's always willing to accept, and, you know, the history of Israel is one of back and forth, you know, faithfulness, unfaithfulness, faithfulness, unfaithfulness on the part of the people. But on God's part, it's always faithfulness. 
whether he is blessing or whether he is cursing. He's doing it in faithful covenantal love. And he's trying to, 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 to help and to, to heal and to bring people to their senses, you know? And I think understanding this and knowing this, it, it leads us in the truest sense uh, to repentance. An illustration of this is, is right after I was baptized in 1999, I uh, saw an old friend. His name was Todd. And Todd, he said that some of the old friends from high school were getting together at a local pub. They were going to have some food and, and reminisce and spend some, some good time together. And his sister was going to be there, his sister Lori, who I'd always thought was really cute and nice. And he said, yeah, come on up. We'll have a good time for old time's sake. Now, Todd was one of my pre-Jesus friends, you know, my friends from before following Christ. But he's a good guy, man. Like he, he's a decent dude. He was a good friend and a really just, yeah, just a got it together kind of guy. And so I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll come. I'll see you guys. Yeah, no worries. Now I had come from severe, you know, craziness. Okay. Uh, a lot of addictions and wildness and habits and whatever. And, uh, I, I sensed that it wasn't going to be a good idea to, to put myself in the position I was putting myself. You know, I kind of, yeah, I felt uneasy, not because I was judgmental and, and critical of my old friends. No, it was because I was a junkie, man. And I didn't need to be in a bar with beer and music that attached me to a life that I was dying to, that I was dead to, you know? And so, but anyways, I went and, you know, after a half hour of drinking sprites and you know chilling out i i went ahead and bought a beer had a few had a beer bought another beer had another beer started having a good conversation with lori started smoking a few cigarettes you know whatever now this is in the hierarchy of sins in my past life man this is like this is like nothing you know this isn't anywhere high on the list of 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 evils you know this is like as clean a night as i had had in the the previous 10 years of my life, right? But I had been free from from addiction at this point for a month. You know, just clean, going to bed, not doing drugs, not smoking cigarettes. And and the fact that I went out to that bar, it really really pained me that I drank beer and just sat around smoking cigarettes hanging out with Lori, you know? And the next day I was uh, I was going surfing and it was about 3 days later that I was leaving Orlando to go to the mission college that uh, I started my Christian journey out in. And I had been clean for a month. And this was like my first stumble, my first fall, right? Back into the old life, even though it was just pretty modest. I just had a few beers, smoked a few cigs, and then went to went back home and went to bed. Now, you're hearing me. Some of you are hearing me thinking, that's just no big deal. Listen, guys, the life that I lived, and I don't like to talk about it much, was the kind of life where you don't go to sleep for like five days straight, you know? And, and you don't sleep until you just pass out for 30 hours. That's the life I lived, where you virtually kill yourself for three weeks for a month and then you, you sleep for two days and you somehow live through it and so but but I felt terribly guilty and I felt I had betrayed the Lord and I and I had to some extent and I allowed my affection for my old friends to draw me into a circumstance that I knew wasn't going to help me or even help my witness to them you know maybe 15 years down the road clean I can go there now you know 20 years now, I've been clean. I can go there now and hang out. They can drink their beers. I can be a blessing to them and hang out in that environment, but I couldn't then. Anyways, so to the point, to the major point. Next day, I go surfing. Guys, it's the most beautiful, cloudless, 
sunny Florida day. The waves are like three to four foot and perfect. Just offshore wind, the water's greenish blue and see-through and clear, and the waves are just breaking on a beautiful sandbank, and the waves are A-framed and perfect. I, I, I remember I didn't pray that morning because I felt so bad. I felt so guilty. Like, I can't go to God. You know, I know I should have. That's exactly what I should have done is gone to Jesus, but I didn't. I just kind of felt like, ah, oh, hiding in my shame. And I get to the beach, and I look at the waves and the perfect weather conditions, and I get out there and got a few waves, and I just thought, God... How good are you to me? I sinned and I I betrayed you last night. I abandoned my commitment to you. And you're giving me perfect waves. Like, what in the world? And I thought, that's it, man. And it was like that goodness from God. And that story is the story of my conversion and, and my Christian experience. And I'm sure it is of yours too. The goodness of God brings us to repentance. They're recounting all of God's goodness in the light of all of their badness. And they're saying, wow. Amen. This is a God we can fully commit to. And we need to to remember that. All right, Wednesday's lesson. It's the law and the prophets. This day's lesson emphasizes how the people of Israel, when they first received the land of Canaan, they they were just, they reveled, they were reveling in God's goodness. Uh, but, but, But then they ended up being basically slaves in the land that he promised them. And it's primarily due to the fact that they didn't want to hear the prophets that God sent to them. And they didn't want to uh, follow the laws that God had given them as a, as a people. Um, so they, they come to a point where they value the prophetic messages that had come to them in the past and the laws that God crafted for their good. If you go back and think about the history of the Israelite nation, you know, it's a curious one because the God of heaven and earth delivers to them a governmental system of law that if followed would bring prosperity and blessing. And they decide that they're going to follow after the ways of the pagan nations. And those ways are pretty sick and twisted. I mean, the Canaanitish practices were foul and odious by any decent standard. Uh, just just terrible. So God would send them in their times of unfaithfulness, prophetic messengers, but they would despise those messengers and mistreat those messengers and oftentimes, you know, kill them. And so here God is trying to send you a message of help and uh, through rebuke and you despise it. You're, you're so proud that when God sends prophetic warnings, you despise them. Because you're more, they were more concerned with feeling good than being good, right? God's more concerned with making us good than making us feel good. But yet we're more worried about feeling good than being good. And I think that's demonstrated in the lesson that is brought to us in the Bible through the history of Israel. And so here in Nehemiah's day, they're, they're, they're acknowledging that wrong. And they're seeing that, that the law of God is of great value and that God delivered it to them to provide for them guidelines for life, you know, for, for health and for happiness, you know? When you think of, of, of the law of God, God's not arbitrary, you know? We shouldn't think of it as some arbitrary standard that he's giving to us so that we could just do what he says. No, there's benefits uh, to, to, to following his laws and, and, and practicing uh, what he tells, you know, practicing his, his counsel, like putting it into practice. 
um, I, I try to explain this to my sons all the time. Like, guys, I love you. Like, I love you. I'm your dad. Like, I spend every moment of my life trying to be the best dad I can be. And I feel miserably. But through the grace of God, my, my sons are surviving. But I try to explain my, to my sons, like, I never tell you, like, that this is the rule of our house or you're going to behave this way or try to make you go to a bed at a certain time because I'm trying to restrict you. I'm actually trying to help you function optimally. And so that's what God was trying to do for the Israelite people. And here they are, just ignoring his laws, spurning the rebukes that come through his prophets, right? We're rejecting those rebukes uh, because they're more concerned with feeling good than being good. And, um, and God was only trying to help them, try to get them back on track, you know? And now they're seeing it. Now they're getting it. And I think we should see this and we should get this. You know, our hearts deceive us. We are naturally rebellious. You know, the Bible says in, in, in Romans 8, and you guys would know this passage probably, Romans 8 and verse 6 and 7. It says that the carnal mind, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Or in other words, the way our mind works, works naturally is that it's, it's, it trends towards death or, or doing things that are bad for us. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace or to accept the Spirit's guidance in our life, which leads us to function in harmony with God's law. It writes the law of God on our hearts. Um, you know, that's, that's life. That's, that's life. Jesus came, came, came to give us life and life more abundant. But then in verse 7, it says the carnal mind is at enmity with God and is not subject to the law of God, and nor indeed could it be. And so, you know, we've got to really accept that we are carnal, you know, sold into sin. And, and when God sends us reproof and rebuke, we should say, hallelujah, amen. Thank you, God, for helping us get back on track. Not, you know, for some weird reason, hang on to our error and hang on to the practices that aren't going to be any good for us, you know. Um, you know, there doesn't, you know, when you think of the governmental system of law that God gave to the Israelite nation, think about it. Like when you think of the governmental system of law as a whole, I mean, there's tons of laws and statutes and sanitary laws. There's property rights laws. There's like laws to govern, you know, agriculture and, you know, there's moral laws. There's ceremonial laws. There's all these different laws. I want to just highlight like the value of, of, of one of those laws. Okay. Uh, Let's say the, the law of uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's a law that's right there in the Decalogue or the moral law of God. Okay, the centerpiece of all of God's law. Um, now, if, if, this, if this command were to be followed in two generations, every single sexually transmitted disease that plagues the human race would be gone. Would be gone. They die out with the people who had them, right? Promiscuity is uh, dangerous. It's unhealthy. Nature itself tries to teach us that, but we don't listen. And it's right there in the law of God, thou shalt not commit adultery. If you obey that law, you're blessed and you're benefited. The laws of God are not arbitrary. He gives them to us because he cares for us. and He's trying to, to bless us. Um, and that's something that we should keep uh, in mind. All right, guys, moving on to Thursday, our last day's lesson. Lesson. We noticed that the people of Israel, they compare their present circumstance to the circumstance of their ancestors when their ancestors were in Egyptian slavery. And there is a real parallel here. The lesson I want to bring out here is that 
Number one, in Egypt, the people were enslaved uh, for no fault of their own, okay? They became bond servants of the king of Egypt uh, because of no fault of their own. Like, their their ancestor Joseph came into Egypt and he effectively saved it. And they became an honored race and an honored culture and honored people in Egyptian society. But then eventually a Pharaoh came who didn't remember Joseph and all of the blessing that he had brought to the nation, how he'd saved it. And so he oppresses the Israelite people. And okay, that's, that's not their fault. Like they didn't do anything to cause the circumstance that they found themselves in as slaves. Um, but then in the captivity that we see them experiencing in Nehemiah, it is their fault. Like they did get themselves into that circumstance. So with the Egyptian captivity, you see God freeing people from a circumstance that they're in, that they had nothing to do with getting themselves into. Okay. So they didn't get themselves into that situation, but God's going to save them from it. Now here you see the descendants of those Israelites effectively in the same situation. They're basically slaves to the Persians. They're in subjection. Uh, maybe not to the same degree, but, but there's, the, there's, the, there's the comparison there. There's, there's the essential the similarity on, a, on an essential level. So um, now they're praying to God, save us, save us. And so we see a God in Nehemiah who is willing to save people even though they're in a situation that they got themselves into. The God that we serve is so awesome that, that he saves people from circumstances that they're in that they had nothing to do with getting themselves into. So he'll save you from circumstances you're in that you're in because of no fault of your own. Or the simpler way to say it is he'll save you from circumstances that are not your fault. But at the same time, he's willing to save you from circumstances that are your fault, that you have created with your own behavior. Either way, God's willing to save. And we can say amen to that. We can say hallelujah. We can say, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forever. You may be in a circumstance like the Israelite nation in Egyptian bondage, crying out to God for deliverance from the circumstances you didn't create. I was born with a genetic disease, a hereditary disease, where I grow tumors in my neck and in my head, and it impedes my speaking. It causes me pain regularly, and they grow slowly. And they may eventually uh, cause my demise and I have to sit here. And this isn't my fault. I was born with this stuff. And I cry out to God for deliverance. And the, the word of God promises me that in this life or in the next, I'm delivered. He delivers me from the circumstances that I have no control over that aren't my fault. But at the same time, I may find myself in circumstances that are my fault, that I did create. And he's, he'll save me from those circumstances too. I remember the man in John chapter 5 and Jesus says to him after he heals him, Sin no more, lest a worse circumstance comes upon you. This clearly teaches that the circumstances the man was in were partly his fault. He created that circumstance to some extent. And Jesus says that effectively. But he still healed him. He doesn't say, you got yourself into this mess. You get yourself out. That's something that a resentful and bitter and cynical person would say. Now, it is true 
that consequences teach us. And God doesn't always remove consequences from us. Because if he were to do so, he wouldn't be loving. He wouldn't be kind. And we need consequences to teach us that the things we've done were not good. But at the same time, he will deliver. He will save. He will restore the sincere and the repentant, even if they're in a circumstance uh, that they created. With this in mind, God bless you all as you set out to teach Sabbath school this week, as you study, as you learn together. God, may you bless us as we minister, as we worship you on your holy Sabbath day. Uh, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye.